this morning. Good. Well, uh, like Dane said, this was the end of Midwinter Retreat, and uh, it was a wonderful retreat. You'll notice people wearing their white sweatshirts. I do not have mine on because I enjoyed the treat a little too much, and I've already got chocolate on my sweatshirt. Um, but we did. We turned the sanctuary into, I say we, because it is a collective uh, monster that does this. Uh, the church came together and turned the sanctuary into uh, Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. And everything from the stage on out was indeed edible. And so... Um, we were up here all week, and we, we do it every year as a mystery for the youth so they don't have a clue, which makes it harder because then you have to work around and find ways to do the work without anybody finding out what you're doing. But I have to thank the church. One of the things I love the most about Midwinter Retreat is that it truly is a church raising a generation together. You know, I can't do this on my own. And, and, and I, could, I could stand up here all morning and take all my time just listing the people who were involved to make this weekend happen. <clears throat> I can't thank you enough. Every year we bring in speakers, and, and last night we brought in Phil Wickham uh, for the weekend, and every year um, the thing that stands out to me is that they all leave in awe. And they leave in awe not so much because of the decorations, but they leave in awe because of this church and the people in this church, and the volunteerism, and, and, and the, the support. So I can't thank you enough. If you've watched the movie Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, or if you're old enough to have watched the movie Willy Wonka, uh, and back in the day, the old one, uh, you know the storyline. And the storyline is basically that there's this man who's, who started out as a chocolatier and ended up creating Willy Wonka. It's not just chocolate, it's candy. And he created this factory, and, and long ago, he kicked all his workers out of the factory, and then the factory's been running, and candy and chocolates have been coming out, but nobody goes in and nobody comes out of the factory for years. And so it's been this huge mystery, and suddenly out of the blue, out of nowhere, this announcement comes out that Willy Wonka is going to uh, put seven gold tickets, I think it's seven, Okay, youth, you don't have to correct me. It would have just been right <laughs> Five gold tickets in chocolate bars, and he sends them out, and they're just random, right? And so the five lucky kids that find these golden tickets are going to get to come and tour the factory with one of their parents. And so, obviously, the, you know, it's this mass chaos as people are buying chocolate bars trying to find these golden tickets. And five kids end up coming in, and one of those is Charlie. And Charlie is... is uh, comes from a poor family. He lives in a house with his mom, his dad, and both sets of in-laws. Both sets of in-laws are, are um, so diminished in their health that they all sleep and live in one bed in the living room of their shack. They're dirt poor. Uh, dad gets laid off right at the beginning of the movie, and they're trying to figure out how they're going to make things work. It's Charlie's birthday nonetheless, and, and he, he gets that, you know, family scrounges together the, the the grandparents had hidden some money away. They don't even know how they're going to eat. But one of the granddads 
decides that this money he's been saving, he's going to buy Charlie a chocolate bar to see if he gets a gold ticket. Indeed, this grandfather worked for Willy Wonka back when people actually worked the factory. And so Charlie runs off, and he goes and buys this chocolate bar and brings it home, and they open it. And, of course, there's no golden ticket. And Charlie's sad. And then one day, Charlie's walking down the street, and he sees a a, a bill, a, a monetary bill in, in the, in, down in the street in, in the gutter. And so he grabs it and he walks in the store and buys a chocolate bar and indeed there's a golden ticket. And so Charlie and his granddad get to go tour the factory. As you watch the movie, the factory is just amazing. They walk into this, this land with the chocolate waterfall and everything's edible and that's what we did for the kids. They came in and everything was edible. And, and throughout the, the, the course of the movie, before all the kids get in the factory, one of the competition comes and, and tells the kids that he wants to buy um, information from them. So as they go through the factory, if they will get the never-ending gobstopper, uh, which he had invented, and bring that, that out to the competition, that they will pay them. And so the kids are all looking for that. And, and they go into the factory, and one by one, the kids end up getting eliminated from the story, right? And it really boils down to their own selfishness, their own gluttony, whatever it is, their own issues, uh, except for Charlie. And Charlie's different than the other kids because from the very onset, Charlie is more intrigued with Willy Wonka than he is with, with the candy and the, and the things that Willy Wonka has created. And so all throughout the story, these kids are ignoring Willy Wonka who tells them, for example, the girl who, who tries the bubble gum that has three, remember it's three mils wrapped up in one piece of gum, and she starts chewing the gum, and, and, and it starts, you know, first she gets her appetizer or her soup or whatever, and then it turns into the main course, and he tells her, I really wish you wouldn't try that gum, but she's the, whole, she's the world champion of gum chewing or whatever, and so she, no gum is too, you know, too bad for, too big for me, whatever, so she chews it anyways, and and then she gets to the dessert, which is a blueberry dessert pie or something, and she's eating it. She starts turning into a blueberry. And he says, you know, I, well, yeah, I tried to tell you not to eat that. We haven't finished it, you know. Uh, and, and they have to go and squeeze all the juice out of her, and then she's out of the factory. They go into the chocolate land, and the German little boy who, who is just glutton and a half you know, when, when, when Willy Wonka brings him in, he says, go ahead, it's all edible, just enjoy. You know, he just, I mean, he just goes and he's just stuffing his face and finally ends up in the chocolate river just sticking his face in it and just sucking up chocolate and falls in and they ha and they end up, and gets in, ends up getting sucked up by the machine that takes the chocolate to go make the candies, right? So they have to go find him. And then you have the girl who's rich, who has everything in the world, anything she wants. She asks her daddy. He buys it for her. She ends up wanting one of those squirrels that cracks the nuts, remember? And daddy's like, how much do you want and, and for it? You know, and Willy Wonka's like, they're not for sale. And, but I, daddy, I want it. You know, it's like that, what is that? What's that commercial that's on now? J.G. Wentworth. I want what I want, and I want it now. You know, And the people are shouting from the window, I want what I want, and I want it now. And that's the girl. I want it, and I want it now. And so she ends up falling down that thing, and they have to go rescue her. right? Or the squirrels carry her off, depending on which movie you watch. Or the book you read. Then there's Charlie, who has nothing. Has nothing. And he's got the promise from the competition that if he will steal this never into gobstopper, that they will get paid a large sum. But Charlie, all throughout the factory, rather than getting keyed in on the things, he's intrigued with Willy Wonka. 
And in fact, in, in, in the later movie, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, uh, you see Willy Wonka, it, you know, he's, each one of the kids, he's got these sarcastic remo- remarks to them. At one scene, he just starts talking about all these kids, you know, and, and, all, it, and basically just calls them out with everything that's wrong with them. And then he gets to Charlie, and he, says, he looks at Charlie and says, and you're just luck- you just feel lucky to be here, don't you? And it just sums up who Charlie is. And the reason we decorated this weekend is because our theme was Jesus come presence versus presence. And so the question I ask you this morning is, why are you here? Why did you come into this building this morning? Why did you get up, get out of your bed, and come to church? Are you here for his presence? Or are you here for his presence or gifts? Did you come into the house of the Lord to just be merely intrigued by this God who created us and all that is, whose son came and died for us so that we could have a relationship with him? Are you so in love with your God that you would just merely long to be in his presence? Or did you come here this morning because circumstances and things in your life have driven you to come to this God to ask for his things? The question is, why are we here this morning? If you've got your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did, you really say, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. And the serpent said, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. This story is very familiar to all of you, I'm sure. But the the thing I want to key in on out of this part of Scripture is is verse 6. And Lauren's already ahead of me. Woo! (laughs) Notice what it says. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. What stands out out about that to me is that here is Adam and Eve who are in the garden that God created and he showed them everything. Remember, he, he showed them the animals and, and Adam, Adam even got to name the animals as God brought them before him. It's not like they haven't walked past this tree. It's in the middle of the garden every day. But what, what made today different than all the days before for Eve? I mean, she had certainly seen the tree before. What made the fruit pop out and look pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom? It was what the serpent said. Suddenly, with with, with Satan coming to her and saying, hey, if you eat of that fruit, God knows that you'll be just like him. Suddenly, with that knowledge in her mind, she looked at the tree and suddenly it was like, oh, that fruit looks good. What happened was Eve took her mind and her eyes off of the one who physically walked with them in the garden every day. Here's the difference. 
The reason they hadn't noticed the fruit on the tree was because when they walked the garden, they literally walked with God. They were in the presence of the one who had created him. And they were enamored by him. Their surroundings mattered nothing because they were so enamored and in love with the one who had created them that when they walked the garden with God, they didn't have time or, or, or a care about anything that was around them. And it wasn't until the serpent came and started pointing out the things that were around them and said, listen, if you'll eat of that, you'll be like God. Remember, the reason they hadn't seen it before is because they were enamored by God. It wasn't until the serpent said, you don't have to just be enamored by God. You could be him. That suddenly they noticed the tree and they thought, oh, wow, that cotton candy looks good. That's what Eve did. Listen, Satan is smart and... And, and we are not. Because the reality of it is, is Satan is doing the same thing today. Satan hasn't changed his strategy at all. And, and if you'll turn to Psalms 27. We're going to see that, that he really hasn't changed his strategy much at all. Psalms 27 is written by King David. This is early on in, in, in his time as king. Now remember, David was the poor shepherd boy. Remember, he had nothing. He was the one whose brothers went off to fight Goliath while he had to stay back and guard the sheep. And, and he was the one who would, you know, fighting bears and lions and, and living amongst the sheep. And he was the youngest of all his brothers. And it wasn't until he went to go bring food to his brothers who were fighting the Philistine that he sees Goliath. He says, remember, he's facing the giant that no other Israelite will go out and battle. And here's this pubescent little cocky little boy who's just ignorant, uh, and he's enamored with his God. And, and, and as Goliath starts to, to ridicule and curse his God, it, standing amidst an entire army of the nation of Israel, it's this pubescent boy that says, are you guys going to stand for him talking about God that way? Heck no. Somebody get out there and defend our God. So David goes out and kills Goliath by the power of God. Becomes king. And early on in his ministry, here's David. Here's this David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though the, an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. Here's a boy who's, who's ruling a nation, and, and armies are coming against them. Armies are besieging him, and his attitude is, I don't got the fear. I serve the living God. This is the God that has taken down Goliath. Here's what I want. I've got, I'm, a, I'm king. I've got everything at my disposal. Here's what I want. One thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling, and he will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon the rock. Then my head will be exalted above my enemies who surround me. 
Here's a king who is enamored so much by his God that all he longs for, the one thing he asks for in life, is to be in the presence of his God. Now, he, he's, not, he's not ignorant to the world around him and the, and the fact that because of sin in the world, that the world is not a good place. He, he states in here that he knows armies will advance against him. He knows that his enemies will not just advance against him, but he says they will besiege him. Yet it will be okay as long as he is in the dwelling place, in the presence of his God. In other words, what this king is saying is, circumstances don't define how big my God is. My God defines how my circumstances impact me. But most like, much like any of the rest of us humans, with human nature, something changes in David's life. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, you can read it later, we see a shift. David now is a more mature king. He's been in power longer. He's, he's got riches. He's got wealth. He's power. And all those things that God gives us, if we're not careful, if we make those things more important than the one who gives them to us, those things kind of start going to our head. And David now is a king who's been blessed beyond measure. And, 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 and David, the man who's known after God's own heart, David suddenly starts taking confidence not in God, but in the stuff. The power he's been given by God. The riches he's been given by God. The success as king that he's been given by God. And so we see Israel just coming out of a battle where they just annihilated their enemies. They, they, they wiped out 700 chariots and took out an entire army. I mean, it wasn't even a battle. They showed up for war and it was, it was over before it began. And, and they come home and they're victorious. And David decides he's going to go take on another nation. Because this nation has essentially, it has subdued itself under the lordship of King David. They're now under Israel's rule. And so David decides to keep on going conquering because he's got all this success and he's taken his eyes and he's forgotten the importance of being in the presence of the Lord and he's placed his eyes on the things the Lord has given him, his success, his power and David decides to go off and conquer this other nation but because David thinks that they are so good and they're so, un, you know, nobody can defeat them and they, he's, he's, he's bought into his own pride that he's king and, and they're, they're, his rule will reign he decides to send off the army, and he doesn't go with them this time. He doesn't even need to go lead his people because, I mean, they're not going to lose. So David sends them off, which is out of character for David at this time. But here's David at home in his palace. And so we see in 2 Samuel 13, David is in his palace. He's trying to sleep at night, can't sleep. So he gets up and goes and strolls on the roofs of his palace. Which in Israel, strolling on the roof is not an uncommon thing. In fact, Israel fam- Israeli families, lit. they had dwelling places on their roof because it was cool at night to get out and get in the fresh air and whatnot. David's up on the palace roof. He's walking around and the Bible says that he sees a woman bathing. And the Bible says that she is beautiful. I'm, I'm not naive to think that David has never strolled the roof of his palace before. Obviously, this is a place he goes to think. He can't sleep. Um, for me, it's watching TV or whatever. We're creatures of habit. David's up strolling the palace. But suddenly, I'm also not naive enough to think that Bathsheba's never bathed on top. Obviously, she must have a tub or something up there. She likes to bathe up there. But for this time, much like Eve in the garden with the tree, David notices her. And the reason being is because he's bought into the same lie that Eve did in the garden. 
Remember, Satan said, if you'll eat of that fruit, you'll be like God. In other words, you don't need to stay in the presence of God. You don't need to, to worship this God. You can be like Him. And David has bought so much into the stuff and his own and success and the blessings God's given him that he's made, he's made himself much more of himself than of God. And so because he's in the same place where Eve was, suddenly he notices Bathsheba. So he sends for her and takes her. And we know what happens the rest of the story there. So I'll return to the question, why are you here this morning? Are you here to be in the presence of God? Are you here seeking His presence? Have you made much of God in your life? Or have you allowed, has your focus shifted off the one who created you, who has promised to prosper you, not to harm you? Yea, even though you walk through bad circumstances, He promises to be with you. Is His presence enough? Or are you focusing more on the things that you want, you desire, you need, and have you, as a consequence, taken this great God and allowed your circumstances to make him seem even that much larger, have you taken this great God and made him smaller than your circumstance and made him someone who rather than you serving him, you are asking him to serve you by meeting your every whimsical want or need? Are you more enamored with his presence than his presence? Much like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, as, as kids, we come into God's creation and, and, and we get so enamored with the things that He gives us or the health that He bestows upon us or that, that we almost get to the point where we take our American culture and we translate that into the gospel where we think that we have rights. We think that we deserve something. The reality of it is the Word says that we deserve an eternal separation from God for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But we've allowed our, our cultural mindset, we've allowed the humanistic nature of our society to infiltrate our Christianity and that we think that we deserve something from God. And, and we run a very fine line of, of taking this God and instead of just enjoying His presence and being in the presence of the Lord, our Creator, our Provider, our Sustainer, and being enamored by Him when we put so much focus on, on our situation, our circumstances, our desires, and our wants, if we're not careful, we take this great God and we say, I'm, I'm no longer going to confess you as Lord with my mouth, like Paul says we should. I'm no longer going to die to myself, my desires, my wants every day, take up my cross and follow you. I'm no longer, as Paul's going to say, I'm, I'm no longer going to die to myself in the life that I now live, live in Jesus Christ, serve you as God for who you are, be content to just be in your presence because you are God. Rather, I'm going to say, God, serve me. Because my life isn't going the way I want. You come and change my life to match my desires, my needs. We focus so much on His gifts that we make His gifts, His blessings, more important than who He is. And we feel like we have a right to do that. When we do that, we're just like the other four kids. We take His gifts, we make little of Him and, and we just destroy ourselves and his gifts. When we're like Charlie and we're content to just know him and be in his presence, the funny thing is, we get all those things. Because God is looking 
to give us an inheritance, just like Willy Wonka was. Willy Wonka didn't want to just give these kids some candy. Willy Wonka was looking for somebody who he, he could give it all to. And in the end, we see he inherits his chocolate factory to Charlie because Charlie was appreciative of him and the entire thing, not just focused on himself and, the, and his desires and wants. And God is the same way. When we ask God for these things, I can't help but wonder if God is, is, is looking at us and saying, I've already given that to you. Think about it. I mean, there's, in, in the room, there's people who have sick, there's sick people in the room. There's people who have sick family members. There's people who have been divorced, whose marriages have fallen apart. Maybe your marriage is falling apart. There's people in the room whose job situation is unsecure. There's people in the, in the room whose children are not living a life that is honoring the Lord and they're breaking our hearts. There's people in the room who have all kinds of circumstances going on in your life that are just tearing you apart. And, and if you're focused on those things, then we make God subservient to us and we say, God, come and change my situation. When we're focused on being in the presence of the Lord, we say, it doesn't matter my situation, God's presence is enough. And God is looking down at us saying, you want me to change your circumstance today, I'll give you one better. I sent my son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. I gave it all for you so that you could not be healthy today, so that you could be healthy for all eternity. So that you could not be fed today, so that you could live all eternity without hunger, without sorrow, without pain, without sin, trial, and tribulation. Yes, your circumstance today might be bad, but rather than just heal that, rather than just change your circumstance today, I give you all of who I am in Jesus Christ. I give you my presence, and I will walk through the circumstance today so that one day when my son returns again, you'll have an eternity free from that. I give you my inheritance. And all he asks in return is that we be enamored more by him and his presence than by his stuff. My, my parents were missionaries. Um, as long as back as I can remember, my dad was a pastor and then became missionaries. Um, and, and, you know, I, I didn't grow up thinking our life was rough. But now that I'm a parent, I look back, I look at some things that just really, man, I'm proud of my parents. When I was six, I guess it was, my, my parents felt like God was calling them to go on the mission field. I can't imagine now uprooting a family of three or four kids and taking them to a foreign nation. It's different than it is today. Today you can get online, you can go and you can research, you can find out all about this country. Back in that day, computers didn't exist. You know, if you wanted to find out about a country, you went to a bookstore and you bought a tourism book and even that, you know, was just so outdated by the time it was printed that you knew nothing about a country. My parents decided to take their kids and because and, they felt God was calling them, uproot us and take us to an entirely different nation, different language, all of it. And about the time they, they decided to surrender to God's call to go on a mission field, they had a son, my brother, named Joshua. And Joshua was born with cancer. And he died when he was one years old. And my parents, when he died, because we, we couldn't go on the mission field while he had cancer, they took us to the mission field. 
I never heard one negative word out of my parents through that whole process. When we arrived in Costa Rica to go to language school, we ate rice and beans every day. Multiple times a day. When I was a child, I thought it was because meat didn't exist in Costa Rica. (laughs) Now that I'm older, I realize it's because they were living by faith and we didn't have money to put meat on the table. So we ate beans for protein every day. Never heard one negative word out of my parents. When we got to Chile on the mission field, right after we got there, mom, mom had gotten pregnant. Right after we got to Chile on the mission field, mom had a miscarriage. Never heard one negative word out of me. After we'd been in Chile for about four or five years, mom uh, got pregnant again. And this time, uh, we had my, she had my brother Jonathan. And Jonathan was born with Down syndrome. And this was back in the day when, when special education in the States was barely new. Um, it, but in a third world country, it certainly wasn't. So when Jonathan was, born, uh, was going to be born, the doctors told my mom that she needed to abort this baby. Because all he would do is be a tax on them. Uh, there wasn't social welfare type stuff down there to pr- provide for him. So mom and dad would have to put him in a home because they couldn't care for a child with Down syndrome. And of course my mom and dad's response was, no, God gave us this child. And so he was born with Down syndrome. And he's an amazing man today. Never heard a negative word out of him. I came back to the States, got married, surrendered to a call to ministry myself. Uh, God gave me a beautiful, beautiful wife, and, and we start doing ministry, and she's stricken with a, a, an illness, a disease that she'll have the rest of her life that is just crippling. Then just two weeks ago, um, we had the largest argument we've ever had in our marriage because... Joshua, our second son, who was born premature and has had health issues, health things throughout his life. Um, Joshua was going to the bathroom like every five minutes. So we took him to our our doctor and and they did some urine samples. And it came back with protein and a high white blood cell count, which could mean one of two things. It could mean he has a bladder infection, which is highly uncommon in in young boys, um, or the big C word. And the proteins mean his kidneys weren't working right. So two weeks ago, as we're getting ready for midwinter retreat, that's the news we get. And the argument we had was really my fault. It's because I, I, don't commu- I didn't communicate well. But Kim was needing my support as we got this news that last week we're going to have to take him to a urologist. Um, and, and my reaction to the news um, was not what she expected. Because I was... Uh, calmer than she thought I should be. And instead of communicating well why I was calm, I just kept silent, and she translated that as I just didn't care. Now, um, I forgot to do this in the first service, uh, but Joshua is okay. We went back last week to the urologist, and they ran the same tests, and they were all perfectly clear. Um, but the reason for some of that is because I never look back on my life as being rough. 
But now as a parent and dealing with my son being sick and whatnot, I look back and, I, and I'm amazed that my parents never questioned God through all that. But I'm thankful. And when I cry tears about it, I cry not out of sadness, I cry tears of joy. Because through all of those circumstances growing up and the circumstances we live with now, I could let those circumstances overwhelm me and cause me to doubt and question God. I think from a human perspective, I, I would feel like I have every right to say, God, my family's done nothing but serve you. Why have you put this upon us? But instead, what I learned from my parents' example is that all those circumstances, when I'm content to be in the presence of the Lord, what those circumstances do is they make my God that much bigger. Because we live through those, and his presence has been with us every time. And while our circumstances might not have changed, he made the circumstances endurable. And he has promised us, he's given us healing. Kim will not be sick forever. It is temporary because one day we will spend an eternity in heaven and she will hurt no more. And I would trade today in the pain, in the presence of God. In a, I, I wouldn't trade it for the, an eternity in the presence of God without pain. And if I was focused more on the here and now and my desires and my wants than the presence of God, I, the illness would make me question and make my faith shaken. If I listen to Satan who's saying you could be like God, God should serve you, he's holding out on you, then I would question him. But instead I've chosen to believe God is who he says he is and that he's already given me the best he's given me the best gift of all and that's Jesus Christ his son who gave me an assurance of an eternity without suffering without pain I'll gladly endure the pain and suffering and trials and tribulations of this world today with the presence of my God ever present reminding me that tomorrow there's an eternity without it So the question again for us today is, why are you here? Did you come to church to be in the presence of your God? Or did you come in the church for him to be, ask him to come be present in your whimsical life? Let me read the lyrics of the song we sang right before I came up to preach. And and listen to them again in that context. Let the pain in my life find its healing in your eyes, not my eyes, in your eyes. Every hurt, every loss, pull me closer to your heart. Let the wind and the waves bring a new courage and faith. The Lord is my shepherd, I want for nothing. He, you lead me to water for you know that I'm thirsty. And I am satisfied only by Every day I make a choice to be led only by your voice. To be bold and unafraid, unafraid, knowing I'm covered, I am safe. And even now in my need, you are proving yet again to me that you are there. You are always there.
hope and pray that this morning that you'll be reminded that, that we will have a perspective shift again that, that when we place ourselves in the presence of God Almighty and we focus on Him, His presence is enough to carry us through any circumstance here. And that when we focus on the presence of God and His Lordship and we, we realize that, that I exist, God, I have given you my life. I exist to serve you and honor you. That I don't need to ask for anything else. Because it's already given to me. Healing. Wealth. No suffering. No pain. No hunger. It's been promised to me. It's been wrapped up in a bow on the cross. And it was given to me. So I can say, the Lord, you're my shepherd, and I want for nothing. Let's do that this morning. Let's take our life circumstances, and rather than let them cause doubt, lack of faith, let's bring them to God. Let's bring them to the altar and say, God, I give them back to you. And rather than longing for you to to, to serve me and change my circumstances the way I think that you should. Let me truly believe that you have a plan and a purpose to prosper me, not to harm me. Let me come and seek your presence and be content to be with you because that is what I need. So Dane and the guys are going to come back up and we're going to spend just a few moments. The altars will be open and let's bask in the presence of our God. Lord, I thank you that, that you did not leave us here to live this life alone. I thank you that your grace covers the, the iniquity of our sin that has brought the evil into this world. That the world we live in was not your intent for us. You created a place where we could walk in your presence daily. But because we chose sin over you, we live in a world that is riddled with the consequences of humanity's sin. And Lord, I pray that we, would, that we would turn back to you and be content to be in your presence and allow your, your glory to carry us through this world until the day where your son returns and we walk in the fullness of the gift that you have already given us on the cross in Jesus Christ. Lord, make your presence be our heart's desire more than your things and your gifts. That we would be content, as David said, that we would want one thing, and that is to dwell in the presence of the Lord all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.